turn in your New Testament to a passage which I think, for those of you who have been here long enough, you realize this is one of my favorite New Testament passages. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. 1 Peter 2, 9. I like verse 10 too, but this morning we're going to focus on verse 9. But I'll read verse 10 as well. How's that? 1 Peter 2.9 reads this way. You, referring to the church here, right? You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Amen. A beautiful passage. I was listening to a podcast, a British podcast, uh, uh, the group that my son is now affiliated with, at least for a few more months, out in England. And they were making a distinction between what churches are like in Great Britain versus what churches are like here in the United States. And, and, and though it was humorous, it was also, I think, very telling. And he described the church in Great Britain as being very austere. When you walk into these old, ancient buildings that have been there for centuries, you walk in and your steps echo. It's tall, it's high, it's rather cold. The minister tends to be rather stoic. You could just imagine the British cleric at the front, usually in a robe, stiff upper lip, of course. And he may or may not greet you. Probably won't. And as you walk in, there's nothing of the sort of saying, well, welcome to the house of God today. It's more like, of course you're here. It's the Lord's day. Where else would you be? It's just understood. Now, mind you, there are fewer and fewer churches in Great Britain. But people who profess Christ in Great Britain go to church. There just happens to be fewer and fewer people who profess Christ in Great Britain. Isn't that amazing how it has changed, how it has turned about over the years? The place that used to be so rich in the teaching of God's word, a country where many people have gone abroad as missionaries from Great Britain, today needs missionaries to come to it. Well, I found it interesting because in their description, they said, again, the minister may or may not greet you, but probably won't. And understands that you're there because it's the Lord's day and that's where you ought to be. Now, he contrasted that to what church in America is like. In America, we do everything we can to be as attractive as we can, correct? And we do, do everything we can in order to make you feel comfortable. Because if you feel uncomfortable, you won't come back. And so what do we do? We make it as comfortable, as family, as oriented as possible, because as Americans, we want you, we want us, to feel welcome and comfortable. And, and what I found very humorous is that often, at least it appears this way, the minister, and I hope I never do this, by the way, the minister always comes off as, so what you think? Did you like me? Are you coming back? Oh, I'll do whatever I need to do in order for you to come back. And, and what a contrast between the two. Now, I, I don't know that either one are right. 
I think that the correct way is somewhere in the middle. Certainly we should be friendly and certainly we should be welcoming, but certainly we shouldn't try to woo you in to the household of God. Certainly not by my preaching or my personality. If I'm depending on that, I'm in trouble. There are all kinds of churches in our neighborhood. In fact, it seems to me that this region here in New Jersey has more churches than your other communities in the state, considering our population. Uh, we are far more sparse than other parts of the, uh, of the state, and yet there are so many churches in our community, and that's a good thing, because many of these churches are truly preaching, teaching the Word of God. And that's a wonderful thing. We are blessed. We are blessed. All kinds of churches in the country. There are big churches, small churches, English-speaking churches, Ukrainian-Portuguese-speaking churches as well. It's still there. There are cathedral churches. There are chapel churches. There are contemporary churches, traditional churches, blended churches. There are attractional churches. There are missional churches. There are liturgical churches in our midst. There are extemporaneous churches as well. There are vibrant churches. There's even some militant churches. There are maintenance churches. Maintenance churches are those churches that are hanging in there hoping that Christ will return before the church dies. We never want to become a maintenance church. There are inviting churches, there are cold churches, there are hot churches, and unfortunately there are those lukewarm churches too. There are all kinds of churches. This morning what we're going to do as we look at the definition of a church and the role of the church in God's framework, I want to discuss from what we read here in 1 Peter 2.9, the job description of every church. What is the church supposed to do? A couple of years ago, I was speaking to a fellow who was hired on to a very prestigious position of a 501c3. 501c3 is a, um, a nonprofit organization. And he received this rather challenging title with a great salary, great opportunities for him, and rather good benefits. And when he was asked by the group there, uh, so what is your job description? He said, I don't know. Needless to say, he lasted less than two years at the job. Because when you don't know what you're supposed to be doing, there's no way you could get it right. Nobody knows what you're supposed to do. He didn't know, they didn't know, so anything he did was either right or wrong, and it came out wrong too often, and he lost his job. How important it is for us to know what we're doing, what we're supposed to be doing, in order to actually perform properly, in order to do what is expected of us. And so I figured I would begin this morning by giving to you the qualifications and then the job description of the church. And it all comes out of this one verse here, chapter 2 of 1 Peter and verse 9. Look at the qualifications of the church. Who is to be a part of the church? Who is a part of the church? And when I'm talking about church, <clears throat> obviously I'm not talking about the building, right? I'm talking about the people. The people are the church. And what are the qualifications for those who are to be part of the church? Well, there's four qualifications. Look at 1 Peter 2.9. It says, you are to be a chosen race, 
a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own possession. In order for you to be part of the church of Christ, here are your, your four qualifications. You have to be those four things. Not three of the four, not two of the four, but all four. All four. In other words, in order to be part of the church of Christ, you must be born again. Those are the words of Jesus Christ. There was a man by the name of Nicodemus, by the way, a very religious man. Religious of them all. And you would think that he would know this, but he did not. He was wondering how could he see, how could he be a part of the kingdom of God? And Jesus Christ said to him, it's recorded in John chapter 3, verse 3. Jesus Christ said, truly, truly, which in other words is um, adamantly, for sure, no doubt about it. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In order for you to see the kingdom of God, for, in order for you to be a part of the kingdom of God, in order for you to experience eternity in the presence of God, you must be born again. Again, you must be born anew. You must have gone from death to life, from darkness to light. That's what we see in 1 Peter 2. It says, once you were in darkness, but now you have been transferred into God's marvelous light. Here is the qualification for anybody who would be part of the household of God, who would see the kingdom of God. You must lay your life at the foot of the cross, place your faith in Christ and turn to him. And then, not by your doing, but by his doing, you will be a part of the chosen race. You will be <clears throat> part of the holy nation, a royal priesthood. You will be possessed by God. You will belong to him. New birth. If you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior, I would invite you to even today place your faith in Christ and turn to him and find life. Become a part of the church of God for your sake and for his glory. Having said that, take a look then at the job description. And lo and behold, it's the same verse. The qualifications are also the job description. Notice there that there are then four job descriptions. And the first one, according to 1 Peter 2.9, is that you are a chosen race. Let's talk about that for a little bit. A chosen race. Do you realize why God or how God knows the future? God knows the future because he has decreed the future. And God knows the future because he is creating the future. God is not waiting for us to do something in order for him to react, but rather God as the sovereign God. That's a big word. Well, it means a lot. It means that he is actually in control. He is sovereign. And it means that it all belongs to him. God is a sovereign God, and he is determining the future. Do you realize that we did not choose him In fact, we would have never chosen him. We're we're sinners. Sinners don't choose God. We run from God. Rather, he has chosen us first. 
Each one of you who know Christ as your Lord and Savior have responded and chosen him, but only because he chose you first. In fact, we see that very clearly in 1 John 4, 19. We love him because he first loved us. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that wonderful? That he would love us first, not because we're lovable, but because he chose to. And because he chose to love you, you can now love him and know him and experience his love. Chosen means that you did not have to work for a place in God's family. A chosen race means that you did not have to fight for a place at God's table. He wanted an unending relationship with you by which he would then save your soul so that you would know him and you would worship him forever and you would enjoy him forever. Chosen race. This is a tremendous position to be in. Let me encourage you to savor it. Few people, not enough people, are in this position. How wonderful it is. And so Peter here refers to us as a chosen race. And by using that expression, he's going back to Exodus chapter 19. You might recall it. We talked about it just a few months ago. In Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6, the people of Israel, the Jewish nation, is referred to as God's chosen race. And what we see here is that now Peter's taking the description of God's chosen nation, Israel, and he's applying it to us, the New Testament church. We are now the chosen race. You'll recall in the Old Testament, first God dwelt in that small tent, the tent of meeting, and then he manifested himself in the tabernacle, and then he manifested himself in the temple, and now he manifests himself in the church of God, among us, in his people. Chosen race means that we then have a common lineage. Whereas in the Old Testament, it was one ethnic group that came from one specific geographical place. Now today, as God's chosen race, it is not just one ethnic group, but all people groups. From all parts of the world, speaking all sorts of languages, we now are God's chosen race. And this is what I want you to see as our job description. The church, us here today, we're not alone, but speaking to us here today, we, the church, is where God is most clearly seen. That's our job description, to display God. Just as he manifested himself in the tabernacle, so he is here with us. And this is where God is to be most clearly seen among his people when they gather together. Now, I realize that for many people, even Christians, we often think that God is more evident to us when we are maybe walking around in the beauty of nature. 
I am, I, I am with God. I see God when I walk through the woods, when I consider the plains. But what we see, however, in the scriptures is not that God is best seen when we are in the midst of nature. What we see is that God is most clearly seen when the people of God gather together. Which means that it's our job to display God to each other. God is present with the household of his church. I realize that this is a truth that's less seen these days. People sort of scratch their heads and wonder, can that be? But please understand that this has been a bedrock understanding throughout the ages of the church. It comes from the scriptures. It's we who have forgotten it. The church has become, I think, much too utilitarian. Do you know what I mean by that? Um, Instead of the church being a place where God is displayed, the church has become more of a place where it's all about me. I'll go to church today because I could sure use a little dose of hope. And it's true, you come here, you get fed hope. I'm going to church today because, well, I think I need it today. And so we come. Instead of realizing that when we gather together, we do so because God is with us. And God, when we join together, is being displayed. The people of Israel did not go to the tabernacle because they needed a little hope today because they needed a good shot in the arm. That'll get me going. Monday's coming after all. No, they went to the tabernacle because God manifested himself there. And the people of God joined first and foremost together because we are a chosen race in which God manifests himself. We are the image of God to each other and to this world. Now today, as we join together, we're displaying God to each other. Tomorrow, when you go off to school and to work, you display God to the world. That's your job description. That's our job description. Through the Holy Spirit, the church comes together as the presence of God, gathered together in order to make God known and to carry out the ministry of Jesus Christ. What Christ began, we carry out. What he started, we continue to do. That's our job. And by doing that, we are displaying the presence of God. It's not as grandiose, I would say, as seeing the image of smoke of God in the tabernacle. You know, we like the sensation. But I must say, When God's people come together and do the bidding of Jesus Christ, it is far more powerful than simply seeing the smoke over the tabernacle. There are some strange ideas as to what the job description of the church is. Some ideas that are just not biblical but have become very common. Let, Let me share three of them with you. Some people think that we gather together on a Sunday morning in order to to simply fortify ourselves against the world. We come together in order to make ourselves strong so that we could 
uh, become better combatants again because Monday's coming. We are like like the army reserve. We come together for a weekend of gospel training. We're the gospel reserve. We're going to fortify ourselves. And there's no question about it. We, we do need to be fortified. We do need to learn how to protect ourselves. After all, Matthew chapter 10 tells us that we are like sheep among wolves, correct? But here's the problem. When we seek our coming together simply as a means of fortifying ourselves, when, when we think simply in, in, in that small, shallow way, we, we see the relationship between the church and the world as a, a relationship just filled with anxiety, with anger and fear, as Klink puts it in his book. Anger, anxiety, and fear. And keep in mind that Jesus Christ did not come with anger, anxiety, and fear. He came into this world with love. And remember, our job is to be Christ, is to be God in this world. And we are not coming together just to fortify ourselves so that we can be better combatants against this world. We're coming together so that we can then take the love of Christ to this world. We want to take the ministry of Christ to them. We want to take the ministry of Christ to each other. And that's the job of the church. Secondly, some people think that we have to come together in order to learn to better dominate the world, or at least better dominate the United States of America. That if we are numerous enough, and if we try hard enough, we will be able to insist and impose the laws of Christians, the law for Christians, onto America, to non-Christians. And so we come together in this sense to, 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 with this view that we are supposed to triumph over the cultural enemies. And there are many cultural enemies today. And by the way, we are losing the fight. At least from the human perspective, we are. But don't fear, that is not our battle. Our job is not to dominate this world and make unbelievers live like they were believers. Our job is not cultural wars. Our job is not to make them more moral people or come up with a better right politics. No, my friends, the job of the church is to proclaim the gospel. It's gospel evangelism. Gospel evangelism. The point is this, look. If their politics are good, if their laws are moral, but their hearts are not trans transformed, then the church has lost the battle. Our job is in transforming lives, not winning the politics. Now, granted, life would be much better here in America if the nation was more moral, if the laws were moral, if the cultural wars were not so. But that is not the goal of the church. The goal of the church is gospel evangelism. And it begins here by displaying Christ to each other and then going there. But it begins here. That's how important church is. We are the presence of God to each other. 
Have you lived far enough from church, long enough from church, that you wonder, where in the world is God? And so we come together to be reminded, oh yes, he does exist, and he's changing the lives of many. The church loses if it only seeks to win the cultural wars, my friends. And here's a third erroneous way of thinking in terms of what the church is supposed to be doing. Others, and many others, would say that the church is here in order to partner with the world in order to make the world a better place. Not necessarily a more moral place, but a better place. And that's, of course, where we get the social gospel from. These people believe that the church is supposed to come together uh, along with the world, walk side by side with the world, and provide for, for the world at large a sociological advantage, a kinder, gentler, greener, tamer world. But keep in mind that the church is never to accommodate itself to the world, and the world will never accommodate itself to the church. They can't. It's impossible. And so our job is not trying to make this a nicer, better world. What you're hoping for, then, is heaven on earth, and that's not going to happen. Heaven will be in heaven. Heaven will be in eternity. Until then, this is going to be a broken world. However, we are to display Christ, continue the ministry of Christ to each other and then abroad, and bring God the glory and satisfaction to our souls. That's the job of the church as a chosen race. A people who belong to God. So what is the church supposed to be? Well, the church is supposed to be incarnational. What is the job description of the church as a chosen race? We must be incarnational. Just as Jesus Christ became a man and he entered this world so, so, and brought the gospel to us, right? So we are to be a people, a race. Who will reflect Christ and take the gospel to each other and to the world. When the church is fulfilling its job description, your tenure will last a long time. You will not be getting the pink slip. God will use you. As your life is being transformed, Others will be transformed. As you display the ministry of Christ to one another, God will be blessing you, your family, your church, your neighborhood, your, your country. Certainly he will bless you. The church is to be the faithful presence of God. We read in John chapter 1, verse 14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now it's our turn to display the word, Jesus Christ. To one another. Carry out the ministry of Christ. Become the hands and feet of Jesus Christ. We, as a chosen people of God, are to be the faithful presence of God. That's the first one of the four. There's three more. And I'm going to say them very briefly, but I'm going to get through the next three. But far more briefly. Look at number two. In terms of the job description of the church, not only are we a chosen race, but look there, it says, we are, you are a royal priesthood. A royal priesthood. Royal, of course, meaning that you are serving a king. In this case, it's the king of kings. 
Christ himself. And not only are we royal, but we are a priesthood. Now, if you take a look at the Old Testament, that's where we see the priesthood. If you take a look at the Old Testament, priests, what were they supposed to do? The Old Testament priests were supposed to be consecrated to God. You know what consecrated means, right? It means devoted to God, set aside for God. They were to be consecrated to God, and they were to carry out the laws of God, and they were supposed to lead people, the people of God, in the worship of God. Three things. Be consecrated, carry out the laws of God, and lead God's people in the worship of God. So if we are the royal priesthood of Christ today, what are we supposed to do? (laughs) Well, we are to be, in the New Testament church, we are to be consecrated to God, we are to carry out the laws of God, and we are to lead one another in the worship of God. That's what we do. That's what the royal priesthood does. That's your job description. Not just mine, not just the musicians. It is our job description that we would be consecrated to God, that we would carry out the laws of God, and that we would together as the presence of God lead each other to the worship of God. A royal priesthood. After all, we are called ambassadors, aren't we? We are the ambassadors of God. Meaning that God speaks to each other, to this world, through his church. He speaks through his church. A Marist poll was recently taken, in which asked the question, which, uh, from whom or from where do you receive your moral guidance? How do you know what's right or wrong? Who tells you? How do you know? And I was rather shocked when I saw the results. Number five of the list, religious leaders. I would be number five. When people are asked, so how do you know what's moral, what's immoral? I would be the fifth person in line to be asked. Well, see what the pastor has to say. Number four was religious teachings. Well, see what the Bible has to say. Ahead of the pastor, ahead of the Bible, was friends. Friends are more likely to go to friends to see what's right and what's wrong. And even before friends, you're probably wondering, what was one and two? Number two was the rule of law. In other words, whatever the legislators decide is right and wrong, that's what people believe is right and wrong. And number one, family. Family is the go-to source for what is moral and what is not. And that could be good, unless, of course, your family is immoral. The good news here is that if people are going to friends before they go to me and asking, well, what does God expect of me? Well, then the good news is that you have an opportunity to be the presence of Christ to your friends. And then take them to the scriptures. And say, this is how I know. This is how I know. They're more likely to ask you than they are to ask me. So let them know. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20 says this, Therefore we are ambassadors of Christ. 
God making his appeal through us, through the church. God is making his appeal through the church of Christ. We are his ambassadors. So let them know. Let them see the presence of God. And if you're following here in 1 Peter 2.9, you know that the third one, the third job description is that we are a holy nation. We are a holy nation. Meaning that God has set us apart for himself. That's what holy means. Usually when we think of holy, we think of um, something that is saintly, maybe a little halo around the head. Very, very bright, very flashing. That's not what holy means. Holy means that you have been set apart. You have been set apart. You're no longer just everybody's, but now you belong to one particular person or for one particular purpose. We have a set of holy dishes in a house, if you will. These are dishes that only come out on special occasions. And they don't go in a washer. We have to do them by hand. They're holy dishes, if you will. Set aside for special use. God calls us here a holy nation. Now notice it does not say a holy person. It says a holy nation. A people together, like a chosen race. It does not refer here in any way to just the individual, but rather it shows to us the corporate nature of God's salvation. You know, as, as people who share the gospel, we are so accustomed to speaking about how Christ will save your soul and all the advantages there are for you as an individual in Christ saving your soul. And that's all very true. However, notice the purpose for why he saves your soul. He saves your soul so that you will be a chosen race, so that you will be a holy nation, so that you will be a royal priesthood, a people who are possessed by God. You see, when we share the gospel and we don't speak about the church of Christ, we're actually gutting the gospel of its purpose. Christ saves us in order to make us into his people, not just so you will get to heaven, but because he is forming a people who are his and who together are giving his glory, giving him glory. Let me give you another statistic. I know many of you don't care for statistics, but let me give you one more. When asked recently, the Atlantic newspaper asked recently of parents whether or not they would be likely upset if their child was to marry somebody of a different political party or a different religion, which would be worse? A different political party or a different faith? 52, more than half, 52% of parents said that they would be troubled more so if their child married outside of their political affiliation. Only 16% said that they would be troubled if their child married somebody of a different faith. And why is that? It's because faith really doesn't matter in our society anymore. What you believe doesn't matter in terms of God's truth. And here we're told that we are to be a holy 
nation, it really does matter who you belong to. It really does matter that God has set you aside. A holy nation means that we are a nation within a nation. Remember we were talking about that a few weeks ago? We're like an embassy, a nation within a nation. A holy nation separated for God, and therefore we are to align ourselves with this heavenly king. Keep in mind, my friends, that we are in this world as a nation within a nation, and enjoy it. Make the best of it. But keep in mind, not to make yourself too comfortable here, because you are a sojourner. You are just passing through. Be careful that you do not allow this kingdom of the world to drown out the kingdom of God in you. That happens quickly and easily. You are a holy nation. The USA is not the holy nation. The church of Christ is the holy nation. And we, as the nation of God, are to take the gospel of Christ and share it and live it out with each other and then beyond our walls so that the people in this broken and darkened world in the USA will see, hear, and believe as well. That's the job of the church. That we would give testimony that God reigns over us. And here's the last job description. We are God's own possession. We are God's own possession. I find it interesting that for most men, one of the simple pleasures of life is to actually own the title to their car. Women don't seem to care very much, but men do. It's like a big deal. You want to be able to say, I own it, I have no more bank payments, and you take that slip and you file it away, but you know where it is and you know who the car belongs to. It's your possession. It's mine. Here God says that we belong to him. It's one of God's pleasures. That he would be our ruler. That he would be our owner. Proprietor. How's that? In fact, it would be a good thing. If you're looking to get a tattoo, try this one. On your forehead. Proprietor. God. God is my owner. I am possessed. I belong to God. When he took you to be his own, he made you his own. Now you are his possession. Look, we're all going to be the possession of either Lucifer or God. Two options, that's it. Just two masters to choose from. I say choose God because he's chosen you. Respond to him and say, yes, Lord, I give you my life. The word there for possession, I won't read it to you in in the Greek. I might as well. You're not going to remember it. Do you remember the word from downstairs we were studying? Anybody? Hey, you did. Who said that? (laughs) Good. Well, here's a very similar word. Peripoiesis. It means possession. Possession. 
God, therefore, is our benevolent master, owner. Here's our job description then. We are to live as a people who belong to God. Our job as a church is to live as a people who belong to God. We are to reflect the family that we come from. We are to reflect the genealogy of God that should be very evident in us. We are uh, to uh, let other people see the divine family traits very clearly in us. We belong to him. But that same word there, possess, we are his possession, also refers to the fact that God not only took us, not only took us to be his own, but he also formed us so that we would be his own. He formed us for himself, not simply acquired us, but he actively, look, he actively sought you out, he formed you into his own, and he decisively chose to make you his own. This was not a matter of chance, but rather a matter of God's personal will. Isn't that a wonderful truth? That God sought you out and that he formed you for himself? Now, he could have done it for anybody, but he did it for you. You! That you would belong to him. But this same word has yet a third meaning. Not only did he obtain you, not only did he form you, but it also means that he will preserve you for himself. How good it is to know that this free gift of God, the gift of salvation, is permanent. That he takes you to himself, he forms you for himself, and he saves you permanently for himself. Our job then, my friend, is to live as a people who belong to God. That's our job description. We are his chosen race, his royal priesthood. We are his holy nation, and we are God's own possession. That's the job description of the church, and we gather together to reflect that. To say, look, we are the presence of God in this world today. The beauty of the church the splendor of God's people. But it's also a very high calling, isn't it? Even intimidating, I'd say, that we would be a reflection of the presence of God to the world and to each other by his doing. My friends, as we transition from the pulpit to the Lord's Supper, let me ask you to consider how you have been fulfilling this job description. If God were the boss, would you be getting the pink slip? Would you still have a job? It's something we need to strive for. To strive as a people to fulfill this job description as God has laid it out for us.